Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Superintendent Michael Matsuda, Superintendent of the Anaheim Union High School District with nearly 29,000 students across five cities. And uh, as our audience knows, this show is dedicated to the future of education, the future of work, and uh, even the future of our country. And we've been so lucky and blessed to have many amazing, incredible leaders, including our own students. But today we do have a, a big fish, as they say, uh, Mr. Alex Cho, who oversees uh, an organization we're going to learn more about called INSEP. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome to our show. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm just uh, really gratified to have the opportunity to spend some time with you. Well, as our, everybody knows, we always start with sort of who you are and what are your drivers. So can you share a little bit about, Alex, uh, your journey? Sure. Um, you know, I suspect, uh, like anyone who's got um, a role to play within kind of the education ecosystem, you know, my principal driver is quite personal. Um, when I think about the arc of, of my family's story, you know, education is front and center. And it's it's front and center in a very complicated way, Mike. It's, it's not, you know, it's not without its downside. So both of my parents are deaf. Um, and, you know, my father was born in the 1930s in Korea, where you know, being born deaf with, was akin to, you know, um, just being locked out of any genuine opportunities, right, in life, right? So his, his own education experience was short. Uh, he, he, despite the fact that he mastered many languages, you know, he was, his, he was finished with education when he was 14. He became a teacher when he was 16, and then the Korean War arrived, and that opened some doors that would otherwise not be there in Korea. Um, that ultimately motivated him to come to the United States and pursue post-secondary education at Gallaudet University here in Washington, D.C., which was at the time the only university in the world uh, for, for the deaf and hard of hearing, right? So it was a beacon of hope for him uh, to come here. Uh, my mom was, was born here in the United States, but she was, you know, like my father, born profoundly deaf. Um, and in her time, you know, in the 1950s, America, you know, if you were born deaf, you you were taken from your family, essentially. So she went to a residential school in New York State. And the entire educational philosophy at that time was to prohibit the use of American Sign Language. So if she was caught, you know, signing to her classmates, right, which is, you know, her first and natural language, there was a glass of water on her desk and her teacher would literally dump that glass of water on her head. <clears throat> As a, as a means of oh my gosh. You know, effectively training her not to sign and just to rely on lip reading and, and vocalization. And so when I think about both of my parents, I mean, education, you know, had one foot in trauma, right? But what happened was this. They both found opportunity in a really unexpected place in, in higher education, in fact. And they found a culture and a climate where they could not only you know, pursue their academic dreams, you know, explore, you know, academic subjects in a, in a, in a, with a level of intensity and seriousness that they were deprived earlier in their education. But they were encouraged to be, the, you know, their truest selves, to kind of embrace their identity, embrace their culture, embrace their deafness. 
And both my parents have, have, you know, really gone on to do incredible things. And, you know, higher education was always the center of that. It was, you know, for them, education was both, you know, a source of tremendous pain, but also the catalyst for, you know, everything great that they were able to achieve in life. And, you know, their experience, you know, kind of mirrors mine a little bit. When I think back to, you know, when I was an adolescent, I mean, Mike, I'll be honest with you, I was a total knucklehead. I was, I, I might have been the worst student, I might have been the worst behaved child at the school, but you know, we had, you know, I don't know, when I, I want to say when I was about 14 or so, I just, you know, I had heard so many times what a bad person I was, you know, how I wasn't right for school, that I really started to believe it, you know, and I, you know, I had a very conflicted relationship with education, obviously. But there was a, I had a teacher, um, his name was Mr. Patrick, and, you know, he saw something, you know, that others perhaps overlooked, or, you know, maybe they believed what they were being told by their their peers. And, you know, he, he literally, essentially forced me to be, to, to go into dual enrollment. And the weirdest thing happened, Mike. I went to a college campus here in Northern Virginia, a local community college. And from day one, um, I just, you know, it's like I found myself there, right? Just being able to engage with the academics in a slightly different way, having a lot more flexibility, having just a lot more freedom to, you know, engage in intellectual pursuits. And I'll never forget, I went back to, I had to turn on my, my, my college report card to get my high school grades. I turned it into the principal, and he was expecting, you know, the C's and B's and F's that I'd, I'd always had in high school, and I handed him a report card of college-level courses where I was getting straight A's. And he was like, you know, we people, right? And, you know, when I went on to, you know, away from community college, and I went to the University of New Mexico, and I was studying uh, linguistic anthropology as a major, and I was uh, had the opportunity to engage with some indigenous tribes around language preservation. And when I saw the lack of opportunities, and was was hearing stories about the lack of opportunity and the lack of, you know, access to education, you know, it really fired me up as a as a principle of you know social betterment, right? So I was always just really, you know, what drives me is really just this this idea that you know. Education is complicated, right? And how institutions interact with individuals is complicated. But if we if we leverage the right things, we can just you know make opportunity you know happen at scale. And so that's what brought me into education. Wow, um, you know what you described is I think what so many of our kids. Um, especially kids of color, but all many kids and adolescents trying to figure out who they are and their own sense of self-worth reflected in their motivation and their performance. So that lived experience, I think, really does explain why you've become such an effective and influential leader. Could you tell us a little bit about this organization, INSEP, and your involvement with it? Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, so NSEP, as we're known in the Beltway, the National Council for Community Education Partnerships, uh, you know, we're a not-for-profit association. Our members include uh, state agencies, uh, K-12 and higher education, uh, institutions of higher education all over the country, and uh, many K-12 school districts. 
And they are brought together uh, because they are all recipients of a federal grant called Gear Up. And the goal of Gear Up is 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 complicated, but but very straightforward. It is, you know, how do we create partnerships between K-12 higher ed community and business leaders to set a strategic agenda to strengthen the pathway to college and career uh, for students who have been, you know, historically underrepresented in higher education. So primarily uh, first-generation students, students of color, rural students, and, and, and other students that have been, you know, you know, effectively marginalized when it comes to opportunity. So what we do at NSEP is threefold. Uh, first and foremost, you know, our members rely on us to help foster the right policies at the federal level uh, to ensure that the resources that Europe provides goes from Congress to the U.S. Department of Education to our grant recipients all over the country. So that that's kind of where I cut my teeth um, career-wise within the education domain. I wish I was talented enough to work with students, but I'm not. Uh, so I, I, I get by by working with the White House and Congress and, and other folks that are probably a little easier to work with than um, uh, you know, students. Um, and so what we do is we just, you know, we work really hard on the advocacy, uh, the lobbying domain, and, and et cetera. Uh, in addition to that, we work to foster, you know, just a, an environment in which best practices and effective practices are disseminated far and wide, right? So the Gear Up model has a number of requirements, but also best practices that we know can really catalyze uh, student outcomes, but also can expand opportunity in the post-secondary and career domain for students. And then really the third major thrust of our organization is around research and evaluation, right? We, we, you know, we know that these types of interventions, um, they have an impact, sometimes good, sometimes negative. Um, so we, we have always long believed that you know, evidence can play a powerful guide. Um, so our, our, what we do is we work with, you know, boy, the gearing community is huge, right? So we're talking about, uh, you know, 156 grants serving, you know, almost 600,000 students and almost 3,500 K-12 schools across the country. And so what we're trying to do is organize our communities so that they can do all the things necessary uh, to address weaknesses in the college-going pipeline, uh, the pipeline to career, and et cetera. Uh, and that, that really requires a multifaceted approach. <coughs> That's a mouthful, and it is a big program. It's a big uh, national program, and to be able to uh, manage something like that in this uh, very divisive world that we have uh, politically and uh, certainly a uh, very challenging world ahead. So a lot of uh, the focus of Gear Up is preparing kids for college and career. Mm -hmm. You, in your own uh, sense of it, what is your what is the difference, or is there a difference between college and career readiness? Well, I mean, if we, I, I think a conversation could be had about kind of what what the empirical evidence says, right? And if you look at like research that ACT and and, and other academic organizations have done, where they map um, the relationship between academic achievement with you know, the skills and knowledge and behaviors that, you know, employers are looking for, you know, I think that empirical evidence says, you know what, those standards are effectively, uh, if they're not the same, they're remarkably similar, right, in terms of uh, academic proficiency. Um, 
but we also know we don't live in an empirical world, right? So when I think about the students that we get the pleasure of, of, of working with, you know, I think they, too often that they hear that it's college or career, right? That these, these are two tracks that don't interface or they don't cross over with one another. When in fact, at, at worst, college and career are two different sides of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when we think about what the, you know, how the world is trending and the jobs of the future and, you know, how do we develop students with the right skills and mindsets and academic competencies to thrive in, in jobs and careers that don't even exist yet. Um, we, we have to treat college and career holistically as, as, as being deeply connected. Um, because I think fundamentally what people are, are, are what, what students and families are, are looking for is they're looking for a leg up, right? It's for them, you know, it's not a matter of, of education equity. It's a matter of economic equity as well, right? And so just making sure that um, students and families make decisions that are favorable to their long-term prospects early in the student's career, I mean, that's really hard work, right? And, and that's kind of why GEARP exists and why it starts in middle school, right? We really start addressing these issues. You know, uh, the PTA does a national survey of its members every year. And there's a disturbing trend that's, I've, uh, there's, that's not surprisingly, but uh, it's a very disturbing trend that this generation of American parents for the first time ever don't believe their kids are going to do better than they have. Because every successive generation, there's surely, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that they've, uh, we've gotten better, we've gotten richer, we've gotten stronger and more successful. Mm -hmm. But this is the first generation that are saying, hey, maybe that's not true. Do you think the American dream is still uh, accessible to young people? Can I be candid, Mike? I, I have real doubts about the, the status quo of the American dream um, in the sense that when you, when you look at the underlying cost of education, the underlying cost of higher education, you know, what, what it costs for health insurance, what it costs for, um, you know, to, to rent or to buy a home, and re- all of these things relative to you know, how wages have responded, right? I mean, there's there's a real tension, uh, I think, in our society right now about that. Um, so I'm skeptical. I, I think the American dream that, that drove my dad to make the long journey from Korea to the United States or the American dream that, you know, drove my mom to, you know, have to overcome so much, you know, to be able to, you know, pursue higher education and these really rewarding careers, I think the underlying value propositions have changed, right? And so I think there's this real tension right now. And, you know, part of me is deeply sympathetic to what our students, the world that our students will be facing, and I'm deeply concerned about it. Uh, But on the other hand, I'm I'm actually quite encouraged by, I think, what our younger uh, future leaders are are thinking about. And if, if I could try to succinct it, you know, try to explain it succinctly, now, whenever I get the opportunity to engage about what their dreams are, I start to realize that their dreams are not the same as my parents' dreams. Interesting. Yes. That, that maybe it's not. It's maybe it's not that the American dream 
is weakening or it's vanishing. It's that we need to create a better dream. And you know, the one thing that I will say that I'm so encouraged by, let's say, my younger colleagues or you know, the, the many high school and college students that I get to meet is the things that they value are just very different than, let's say, what preceding generations value. And you know, maybe it's not about you know, material things. Maybe it's more about a sense of, of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a sense of connectedness that they really value that, you know what, maybe in the long run, um, obviously we have to rectify some of the inequities that we see, you know, and then we'll probably spend the rest of our lives doing that. But um, I think there's an opportunity to rethink things. And I'm excited by what these, you know, Generation Z and, and, and following, you know, how they define success. <clears throat> you know, that's a very profound uh, observation that you've just shared. What does that mean? And I, I would agree with what you're saying, but um, no one has quite said it the way you just said it. <clears throat> what does that mean for institutions that have been preparing kids for that past American dream? Yeah. Well, I think it's profound, and and you know, I, I so much. And part of the tension is this: you know, the the American American dream has just been so profoundly successful for so many people that it you know it's it has achieved kind of mythological status, and the extent to which our our institutions and our policies are still anchored to the you know the this proposition that if you work really, really hard, you're going to, it's going to pay off in a really big way. Um, you know, that, that is a quintessential American thing, right? It's, 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 it speaks to our Western culture. It speaks to a lot of different values and things for our institutions. You know, I, I, let me use your, your, your district as an example. You know, so many districts have, have made such a deep commitment to, you know, thinking about college career readiness as kind of a linear path, that they have effectively, you know, really closed the door. Um, and, and I don't think they did it intentionally. I just think that they're trying to do their best. Um, they've really closed, closed the door to kind of alternative approaches where we think about a student's experience really holistically, right? And so part of what is going on in Anaheim that I'm so excited about is this, you know, real emphasis that, you know, education is a catalyst. And yes, you absolutely have to develop important academic skills, right, to succeed. But there's a lot more to a person's character than, you know, what their ability to interact effectively with content, right? There's things related to character and citizenship and critical thinking and, and SEL and all of these things. and the challenge for so many schools is, is how do we personalize that in a way where, especially when you're dealing with adolescents that are you know, really going through transformational physiological changes, biological and psychological changes, you know, how do we nurture them as a whole rather than how do we just nurture them academically? And when I think about so many of the Gear Up alumni that we've gotten to know and actually have observed how they've done professionally for the last 10 or 15 years now that they've been out of Gear Up and they've been out of college. And, the, you know, the one thing that they all have in common is this incredible entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it's, you know, they, they all did the right things, but they have a degree of, of 
you know, they're playing by slightly different rules, right? They're much more entrepreneurial. They're, you know, I think much more vested in pursuing goals that are, you know, meet their personal needs. Might you know, that might be emotional balance. It might be emotional well-being. It might be all all these other types of things. And and how do we foster that sense of identity? You know, early and often. That's a real challenge for us. Pretty old incoherent answer there, Mike. But I well, think we're all trying to figure it out, right? Well, I think <clears throat> what Europe offers um, is sort of a, a and and the <clears throat> maybe the opportunity of this pandemic <clears throat> is to transform and reinvent and become right. more entrepreneurial. And I think that uh, definitely we're, we're seeing that with um, some of the. It, it's it's surprising kind of that <clears throat> energy that's coming out of the gear up community um, in terms of the, the this annual conference uh, coming up next month. I understand it's the, the biggest and uh, ever right in the history. <clears throat> How do you explain for that? Um, because on the one hand, we've been told that teachers and educators are so worn, you know, they they don't want to do anything and they're tired. But here we are uh, <clears throat> coming up to July, and we have this big conference, and there seems to be so much energy. There's so much energy, and um, I I don't dismiss the idea that they're tired. I'm sure they're going to be quite exhausted on the flight out. But, you know, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, what the pandemic has done is I think it's challenged everybody's assumptions about how gear up should work and how education should work and how we should foster career readiness. You know, the work at gear up has been, you know, about establishing an implementation model in like the late nineties and incrementally improving on that. But what the pandemic has done is really upend, you know, mm-hmm. effectively all of the assumptions that undergird, um, not only gear up, but, but, you know, the leverage we have at our disposal to work effectively with students. So my hunch about why there's so much enthusiasm about our conference, and let's use that as kind of a proxy for, I think, what is a bigger hunger. I can't imagine, I mean, there's, I don't think there's ever been an event as disruptive as the pandemic on the fundamental tenets of education. And, And, you know, obviously you and your colleagues have you know, done an extraordinary job, you know, navigating that. But I'm not sure everybody feels like they have all the answers, right? Like if, if we challenge our assumptions enough, if we, if each of us in our own way have to approach the daily work, you know, through a completely different approach, we want to share and learn from each other, right? And that's, that's really been a big negative byproduct of the pandemic. It's just like this complete absence of connectedness and this real strong sense of isolation among um you know, educators across the country. So to have the opportunity for, to come together with, you know, educators from Alaska, you know, New York, all over the country, right, to talk about our shared and lived experiences, you know, what did we learn? What does this mean? How do we change? I mean, these are big, meaty questions that I think people are anxious to discuss. Um, and there's, there's just really not a lot of forms for us to do that. So being able to create this forum and to be able to do it in person after years of being away, I, I think uh, people are just excited to find a sense of purpose and, and a sense of renewal, um, you know, being part of a bigger community, you know, that really cares for, you know, in, in a very deep and genuine way about what people are doing. I think it, people are excited. 
I think it says a lot about Europe's branding and uh, you and your team, Betty, Paul Ortiz, and just the amazing, amazing staff that you have. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, we kind of started out with this conversation about the need to belong and be part of something greater than ourselves. I think that uh, says a lot about Europe. And it also says about your leadership too, Alex. Um, you're such a humble man, this uh, servant leadership, and uh, but still grounded in, in vision and and moving forward. <clears throat> I, uh, you know, in the last minute or so, what what message do you have to um, students and educators um, at this time? Well. Uh, you know, to, to you know, all of all of the educators in Anaheim, you know, from you know our, our district level staff, our teachers, our, our counselors, our custodial staff, everybody. I mean, you know, it is not lost on us um, the just the tremendous personal sacrifices that that every single educator has made over the past two years to you know make the best out of an impossible situation. And I can't conclude, you know, the hundreds of conversations I have with educators a year, you know, without believing that, you know, I think there's just a broad sense of, boy, we really, we did our best, but boy, we're still falling short. And, and, and that is a reflection of how serious, you know, the impact of the pandemic has had on students and families, their economic well-being, their, their mental health, all of, you know, the litany of factors. But imagine what this would be like if we didn't have your teachers, Mike, or we didn't have your counselors, or and we, if we didn't have the extraordinary people who have, who have come, you know, to remarkable lengths to try to meet the needs uh, of students and, and families in an incredibly unpredictable time. I, I, I cannot believe how effectively um, educators pivoted um, adapted and, and fundamentally changed how they approach the work as a result of the pandemic. Not knowing when this pandemic is going to end, um, I, I, I think, you know, obviously, I, I don't believe we're just going to go back to the way things were, right? Um, so I think it's incumbent upon all of us, you know, practitioner all the way to policy uh, folks, you know, thinking about education is, you know, Based on everything we know about the human experience and 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 how to nurture the well-being of our students and families, like I, I hope the next couple of years, the next five years or so, you know, can be really focused on reinvention. Um, you know, our values I think will, will remain true to what they were before the pandemic, but you know, I think our philosophies, our theories of action, I think our our day-to-day -day operations, you know, I think we need to be open to adaptation and evolution. And I know from a Gira perspective, you know, that's something where we're going to be focusing on um, is, is not just trying to reclaim what the past, but to try to, you know, reinvent a brighter future, which, you know, the pathway to success for students, it's, it's easier for them to walk and easier for them to navigate. So I just wish everybody there in Anaheim the absolute best in doing so. And, and I'll be watching. I'm really just so excited about all the innovations you guys have on your way. So thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. And on behalf of our 20, 29,000 students and their families, thank you and your team.
for for your leadership. And I think more than ever, people are uh, they need to trust in their institutions. And uh, you are um, an amazing person, amazing leader. And uh, thank you for your leadership. Well, thank you. The, the feeling is mutual, Mike. So I appreciate the opportunity to get a chance to chat with you here. And, and, and obviously, if anybody at Anaheim wants to talk, I'm, I'm always here. So please make sure my, my contact information is available and, and we're here to help out wherever we can. We've got some great tools.